Hi everybody, Mike Wardrock from Encounter Church here, and thanks so much for tuning into our podcast. Our prayer is that through this podcast, you could have an encounter with Jesus that will change your life. And now get ready for an inspiring message from our teaching team. Thank you, Angus. Thank you, Church. Thank you, Geordie. Anybody else? Thank you, worship team. Just give myself a... Thank you, Jenny. Okay, that's got to stop now. But thank you, everyone, in advance for your patience, kindness, and well wishes afterwards. All right. Uh, so about six years ago, I became a Christian. Was a big thing. There we go. We just always, always start with a softball, you know, that was always going to get a whoop, right? So I became a Christian and I started using words like trust and faith and love and resilience, which we've all always used, but I started using them in a different way. I started using them in a way um, with, with a different set of expectations. Now, what I started to find as I progressed in my journey as a Christian is that I was still using those words with better intent, but they still had my own expectations attached to them. I was a comfortably middle-class man in a comfortably middle-class house with just a comfortably middle-class existence. You know, two kids, three kids. <laughs> Sorry, Cece. <laughs> Can I get a hand up for youngest kids in the room and, and middle kids feeling very seen at this moment as well? Right? So I had this very comfortable lifestyle. I wasn't at the bottom of the barrel. I wasn't just like crying out for something else and I started to live this life. And then two pretty big things happened in the first 12 months after I started following Jesus and we started making that a part of our family and a part of my personal life. And the first is one day while I was at work, I got a call from Kara to let me know she had just gotten home and the dogs were out running around the house and that's kind of weird because they're normally out, you know, laundry and out the back and it became pretty clear that we'd been broken into. And I rushed off from work and I went back to the house and met Kara there and, and it was just one of those heartbreaking moments, this real, all those cliches that you hear of, I felt violated, I felt like I'd been intruded upon, all those things uh, were very real uh, and that's, that's quite often I suppose where these stereotypical things come from is the fact that it's just this shared experience. So it was, it was just stuff, we came to this realisation and this calming pretty quickly that it is just stuff it would be replaced, that's what insurance exists for. And then we came pretty quickly to this realization that Jesus would probably hold us in good stead here. We thought we were probably gonna be okay. Uh, now I'm someone that thrives in a bit of chaos. Uh, I don't seek it out, but I tend to do okay once I'm there, so maybe there's some other lessons for me to learn there, but that's okay. Uh, and even in that, I will say that the police actually said to me, almost through like a side eye, like, you seem really calm, man. I was like, what does that mean? But yes, I, I feel pretty calm. Like, it's okay. Um, now, as part of that, I, I used to be a watch guy. So I was someone who, as he touches the smartwatch instinctively, right? So I was someone who collected watches, and I curated a collection over the last decade or so, and it was not like expensive pieces. There are actual watch guys that earn, have watches that are worth more than an annual salary for me. Not that watch guy, okay? But I just had nice bespoke pieces. And I talked to Kara after all that incident, and uh, we, we decided that, um, we, you know, I, I was just not going to replace that collection. 
There's other stuff that went into it, but that was kind of that takeaway moment for me in that time of, okay, that this is the lesson that I can take out of this, is that these are just things, that's just stuff. It's not important, don't need to replace it. Lesson learned, tick the box, feeling pretty good. Like we're on this path of discipleship under Jesus. Things are just things. And then six months or so after that, something else happened, which was pretty big and pretty earth-shattering. And uh, I got made redundant at my job. And this was a job I'd toiled away at, and for people that knew me at that time, they knew I sunk in far too many hours. Uh, I definitely sacrificed personal relationships. I sacrificed parts of my marriage. I sacrificed parts of the dad that I wanted to be and the friend I wanted to be because I wanted to toil away, right? I really wanted this to be my thing. And it did become my thing, and it became my identity. Whilst I was on a Sunday calling myself a follower of Jesus, Monday through Saturday and into evenings and, and all the other things with 100 emails and, of a night time and etc. I wasn't living that out. I was showing myself to be the guy that does all the hours at work. So that was it. It was gone in a moment. And this is a sermon that's titled Resilience. So as you'd expect, I responded with an incredibly calm demeanor and a steely resolve and I just tackled it head on. There's a few people chuckling and one of them should be Mike. Because that's not what happened. I did make my way out of the office, steely-faced. I went down the back stairs. <laughs> that's a tip if you ever get made redundant. Go down the back stairs, a little bit easier. All right? And I thought my pride's still intact. And then I called Mike, and immediately started to just absolutely just weep. Now, I'm a crier anyway, but this was a little bit of a different different cry. I, cr I cried pretty hard on that phone call, if I'm being honest. And Mike dropped everything and he said, that's it, Coffee Baron in 10 minutes. I'll see you there. And that's what we did. But before that, with blotchy eyes and shaky hands, I sat in the ute that I knew I'd have to return to that job within the next 48 hours. And I did the only thing I could think to do. Well, there's two things, really. I continued to cry. <laughs> and I prayed. And I remember that prayer almost verbatim because in the moment, that's all I had. I didn't have depth. I didn't, the, the, the fancy words weren't what I was interested in. I said this over and over and over again to the point where I was actually late for coffee. I wasn't at work. I had no excuse to be late. Uh, I said this over and over. I just said, Jesus, I've been saying I trust you. Please help me to do so because right now I need it. Yeah, that's good. That was it. And then I drove off. I had no way in that moment of knowing how all of this would turn out. But I was feeling a little bit more confident that Jesus would reveal himself in this. That despite my lack of confidence in this situation, somehow it was hopefully maybe going to be okay. Now, John Mark Comer is a name you've heard if you've been an encounter for more than 45 seconds, but here we go again. He talks about this human ideal that we have that is our life should go into an up and the right trajectory. There's this falsehood that if we're polite and we study hard and we're nice to the right guy or girl and we work hard enough and we go to all the right meetings and we talk to all the right people and we laugh at the right jokes and we floss regularly and we <laughs> read more than we watch Netflix and we do all those things that we think are markers that make us good people, that everything is just going to go in this progressive linear fashion. We're going to go up, which is growth, and to the right, which is progress. And he talks about it with a hint of sadness, I think. Um, and I was living it with a point of pride. Now, the most important word in all of that spiel that I've just said is that 
that's a falsehood. It's because that's, that's what it is, because life is just never, ever that simple. Because life tends to look a little bit more like this, if we're lucky. Because here's what is true, is that life is full of uncertain people facing uncertain moments with uncertain stories and uncertain outcomes. Resilience is something we all talk about as this incredible ideal for society. It's for people we know who just need to get their stuff together. But not me, not me, not you, not us, because we've all got our stuff together. Resiliency is one of those matters that we always put over here in a box. It's a them issue. Very rarely do we think about it as a me issue. Which is why I think, in reality, the first step towards real resilience is actually humility. Humility is formed out of an understanding of our place in the larger order of things. And it genuinely requires a pretty deep sense of resilience to be willing to push past the initial hurdles of that journey of humility. Um, it's because removing yourself from the center of your own universe is pretty hard to do. That's kind of all we've got a lot of the time. And the flip is, resilience actually requires a great sense of humility in order to service in the way that we so deeply need it to. Nobody starts a path of humility, faithfulness, obedience, or understanding at the end of those journeys. The reason for that is, is that most of those journeys, those attributes that we so desperately want, they don't actually have an end point. So what keeps us going on those journeys, on those paths, on those lifestyles we want, on those, those, that, those growth points that we want to see? You guessed it, it's resilience, right? And, and that's where it comes from. And, where does resilience come from? Humility, all this stuff. Hey, welcome to church on a Sunday. The answer is, as it always is, is, is God. Okay, those attributes, those paths, that resilience comes from God himself. From a trust and an understanding that even if I don't have it under control, he has it under control. Yes. Right? But we have to have humility to see that God is in it with us, that he is in control, and then he feeds that resilience that we need to push forward. In Rebecca Lyon's book, Building a Resilient Life, she talks about the fact that resilience starts with an individual, and then individuals take that responsibility to their, uh, sorry, where an individual will then take that responsibility for their response to adversity. And then the individual can nurture this response, and if they can, an individual can, then you and your partner can, and then you and your family can, and your community can, and your church can, and it expands. It's an expanding idea, but it starts with the one, it starts with the self. It's because groups talk about, as we did before, about big ideas. A collective we talks about them. We talk about an idea like resilience, but an individual has actually had to live an experience. An individual has had to call on humility. An individual has had to rely on resilience. Individuals have stories of addiction, parental wounds that just don't feel like they'll ever hear, children that have been loved, children that have been lost, anxiety so crippling you've wondered if you'd if you were just broken beyond repair, and why God may have made you like that in the first place. In those moments, they're not concepts, those are realities. And it's our response to this reality and to this adversity, whether we choose acceptance, now, dare I say it, whether we actually choose to find, to work hard to find some sense of peace or joy in these moments, that is where resilience is found. And as a Christian, that resilience, that willingness, that desire to fight another day, again, it's born out of Jesus. It's born out of a love and a confidence that can only come from him.
We're going to work our way back to the teaching text now. It's the story of Joseph that really brings a lot of these ideas and these concepts together for me. Joseph was the son of Jacob, and he was, in truth, Jacob's favorite son. He even got a lovely coat to show for it. He was kind of the original Nepo baby. He was part of Jesus' bloodline. He was born into a wealthy family, lots of brothers. Uh, This favoritism, though, just it isn't hidden. And as a young man, he has two distinct visions. 17-year-old boy, we'll say, he has two distinct visions. In the first, he tells his brothers that he has had this vision that they one day will all bow down to him. Youngest brother. Any younger siblings in the house? I know I forgot about all of you before. I'm a younger sibling, don't stress. As you can imagine, that was received super duper poorly because nobody wants to hear that, not ever. Okay, so then he has a second dream. And in the second dream, same vision, same idea. All of my brothers will bow down to me. And after the poor reaction of the first, he's obviously learned his lesson and he slows it down a little bit and says, maybe I won't share this one or maybe I'll do it at a good time. Absolutely not. He shares again. Right? This is horrible decision-making. Great dreams. Horrible decision-making. Right? So jealousy and anger run rampant from his brothers and they concoct the plan. And it's a pretty good one in their eyes. They're just going to kill him. They'll make it look like an accident, but he's got to go, right? We are absolutely not bowing down to him. Now, at the last second, they audible to a plan where we won't kill him, one better. We'll just sell him into slavery. Then we can profit off this, and he still goes away. Cool story, right? Great idea. Let's go back to this idea from earlier of the up and to the right trajectory. He was his father's favorite, which feels like a pretty good uptick for him. He has these dreams of becoming a ruler, which, if you're him, must feel really good. And then he's sold into slavery. Downtick. Well, that's a downslide by anybody's measure. So he's sold into slavery, and he gets sold to Potiphar in Egypt. Potiphar is very powerful. He's the captain of Pharaoh's guards, and uh, he takes a liking to Joseph. Not only does he take a liking to him, the Bible tells us that his master saw that the Lord was with him and gave him success in everything he did, and he names him the head of his house. Upward tick. Potiphar's wife also takes a liking to Joseph. Upward tick. She takes, she takes that kind of liking to Joseph. Hold. Hold. She makes moves on him repeatedly, and he rejects her advances. Good guy, Joseph. Well done. Upwards tick. That's good decision making right there. Potiphar's wife tries again and again, and then one day she has a great plan. She clears the house. Joseph notices there's nobody around finds the wife, she makes a pass at him, he flees from the house, she grabs his coat, and then uses that as evidence that he has made a pass at her, accuses him of that, it's a huge no-no, it's objectively untrue, and then Potiphar responds in great anger, as you would in this setting, and he jails him. Again, if we're playing the uptick, downward slide game, being, being jailed after being falsely accused of sexual assault feels like a pretty big downward slide, right? And this is where it really starts to get interesting. If we take stock, this is now two massive, life-changing events that have happened to Joseph. He was sold into slavery. At that point, his worst crime was maybe a little bit of just like, I don't know, not not the best judge of how to emotionally raise some of these visions with his brothers and a little bit of hubris. Like, Like, that was his biggest crime at that point. And then the second... Oh, sorry, I'll stop there again. So at that point, though, he does that. 
And his response is he works hard. He works hard under Potiphar, he becomes a trusted advisor, and he earns himself that great spot, that great position. And the second act that happens to him is he's wrongfully accused of this assault by someone much more powerful than he, and he's jailed. Now, how does he respond to this? Joseph now becomes the jail warden's right-hand man. This is just what Joseph does, man. He's just moving and shaking up and down, right? So what happens is that the warden just stops paying attention to what Joseph's doing. He's got so much trust in him at this point, and he just feels like he's proved himself to be such a man that God is obviously with that he just leaves him to it. Now, if you're Joseph, how easy would it be to just sit and rot and feel sorry for yourself and just wallow in misery because you didn't do this, you didn't cause this, you didn't ask for this, and you're here anyway. And I think you'd be okay. You'd, you'd, you'd be understandable to say, the world is rigged against me. I've got no say. Even when I do the right things, look where I've ended up. But Joseph stays true, and he stays faithful, and he continues on his own journey. And again, why does, the, why does the warden leave Joseph be? It's because, again, the Bible tells us that the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in everything that he did. It doesn't say that he gifted him and put him on top of a mountain. It says he just gave him success in everything that he did when he was with him. Now, the first time we saw him giving, the Lord giving him success in everything he did, he was in a palace. And the second time we see him giving him success in everything that he's doing... He's in a jail cell. So whilst he's in that jail cell, the Pharaoh's baker and his cupbearer are thrown in jail. And now after they've been in custody for some time, both men have visions on the same night, both have dreams on the same night, and they're pretty disheartened the next day. And Joseph, uh, Joseph sees him, he's a bit glum, and kind of gives it the old, hey, how you going, guys, what's, what's up? You look a bit, a bit down in the dumps, right? And... They say, we've had these dreams. And he says, well, dreams belong to God, not man. But share them with me. And these dreams are now interpreted by Joseph. He's had his own dreams he's interpreted. He's now had these dreams that he's interpreting. And it's pretty good news, kind of. Both men will be released in three days. That feels pretty good to say. However, the baker will be killed by Pharaoh. Sorry. The cupbearer, however, will survive and go on to serve the Pharaoh again, as he once did. And all Joseph asks, he's given this, these visions, he's been wrongfully imprisoned again, and all he says to the cupbearer is, when all goes well with you, not if, by the way, when all goes well with you, this is the faith that, that he has in these visions from God, remember me and show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. Seems like a pretty fair request to make of somebody you might have earned some good favor with. So again, they do get out. These dreams are fulfilled. The baker is killed. Sorry, we'll move on from him now. The cupbearer goes on to serve Pharaoh once more. And of course, does exactly what he said he would do. No, he doesn't. He immediately forgets about Joseph. Now, that's not necessarily another downward slide for Joseph, but at best, this is just like a pretty low plateau that he's just sitting on now. Now, I don't want to step over this, but it's three little words, but it kind of means a lot in the concept of the story, which is two years later. Two years later, the Pharaoh has a series of dreams he just cannot understand. He sent for all the wise men in Egypt for their interpretation. None of them could do it. And it's in this moment that the cupbearer remembers Joseph. He doesn't even remember him by name, 
by the way. That's how long it's been. It's two years on. He simply remembers him as the young Hebrew who accurately interpreted my dream. This is two years on. So Pharaoh sends for Joseph. Pharaoh says to Joseph, I hear you are a man who can interpret dreams. Now Joseph has been in prison many years at this point. It has been those two years since the cupbearer and the baker had been released in prison, let alone when he got there. Now he could take this time to claim some false valor, to attempt, uh, attempt to seek Pharaoh's favor, like, at this point, would you not be willing to do just about anything to get out of prison? If you thought you could make yourself look this little bit better, you'd likely do it, right? Try to reclaim a life that he's lost, not out of his own doing, by the way, out of somebody else's abuse of power and abuse of a poor moment. And what does Joseph do? What does he say? And that brings us back to today's teaching text. He says, I cannot do it. But God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. That's, a, that's pretty incredible, this humble and resilient mindset that's just born out of this God-focused humility. In a moment where he could have just raised himself up, he says, I absolutely will not. This platform is God's platform, not mine. And I need Pharaoh to know that. I'm going to repeat this again because it bears repeating. He's been sold into slavery. He's been wrongfully imprisoned. He's been abandoned by many helped and left prison before him. He has every reason in the world to turn away from God. This wasn't his plan. He had been wronged. He had suffered a great injustice. Sorry, He must have had that feeling of like, God, I have given you everything up until this point. I have honored you and I have served you and I've told people that you are ahead of everything. And I, it didn't work out for me, so I'm going to start doing it my way. And he just doesn't do it. Raises God above again. Yeah. Yeah. He says, all glory be to God, even in that moment. Yeah. Now that is how someone with a res- resilient faith responds. I don't see the plan, God. I do not understand it on any level, but I'm handing it to you anyway. Trusting that you will make all things good. Yeah. Because you've done it before, and I'm believing that you'll do it again. And Joseph proceeds to then interpret Pharaoh's dreams. Seven years of good harvest and abundance, which must have felt good to say that part of the vision, right? And followed by seven years of famine. Pharaoh's going to need to prepare. He's going to need to store grain. He's going to need to place a wise and discerning man in charge. (coughs) Sorry, excuse me. Because the country will be destroyed by famine. He needs someone who is able and capable of running this. And Pharaoh agrees with him and says... You do it. Uptick. Uptick. That's pretty good, right? Not only am I out of prison, I'm now Pharaoh's right-hand man. Pharaoh literally says, no one will be as powerful in all the kingdom other than me and then you. That's it. You're number two. That's pretty impressive. Now, from here, I know a lot of you know the story of Joseph. And you're probably starting to go, we are not that far in text. The story's pretty long and winding, right? I'll paraphrase some bits where we need to. Joseph's prophecy, it comes true. Seven years of abundance, seven years of famine. His brothers, the ones who sold him into slavery, they have now had to go to the one place in the land they knew there was food. They've had to come to Egypt. And the man who is responsible for deciding who gets food, who pays for food, where it comes from, where it goes, again, it's Joseph. 
So they come to Egypt, and they are desperate, and they get their meeting with Joseph, and they have their audience, and they don't even recognize him. He recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. Can you imagine how that must have felt in that moment? These are the brothers who abandoned you. They left you for dead, and they don't even take the time to recognize your face at all. It's gone, completely wiped from their memory. He could never forget them. He could never forget the dreams that he had either. Now in that moment, I'd love to say I took his approach. My approach would have absolutely been, oh man, this is not the greatest thing. I hope it wouldn't, but I know. How easy would it be to just go, see? The dreams I had, the visions I saw, now you come to me. You need me. Time of great need. You sold me away, and here I am. You need me now. It doesn't do it. Why? Because he's been on a huge journey of faith and growth. He's had to learn how to cope with setback after setback. Those who were expected to protect him had already sold him into slavery. He's had to actively choose a resilient life. He's had to actively pursue it and that path rather than the one that was necessarily set out before him. However, the secret and the source here is that that choice that he made was not only a path of resilience, but it was a a path in which he was on it with God every step of the way. Now, I'm not going to lie. Again, it's all there in the book. The the brothers cop a little bit of grief. Like it's not completely smooth sailing. There's a bit more in this story that is probably not completely necessary, right? But he, he sends the brothers away with food and he tells them not to return unless they bring their youngest brother with them, which they do. Now, as part of this journey and as part of this story, Joseph then invites the brothers to his house for supper. And during the course of the meal and everything going off, eventually it just becomes too much. And he sends everybody away, all of his servants and attendants, and he sends everybody away, clears the house, and it's just him and his brothers. And he breaks down, and they say his sobs could be heard from the Pharaoh's temple. And it does make me think, that moment in my car a few short years ago, all those thoughts, when you have all that overwhelming stuff, I was not sold into slavery, by the way. My example is not quite as extreme but it was my example, it was still my moment, it was my reality, it's all I had. And that moment and that realization, the tears flowing of, what do I do? How do I respond to this in this moment? How do I come good from this? How do I see God in this? And that's what it comes down to, is how will I see God in this? The first time you bring it all back to God and say, I don't know that I can do this, but I'm trusting that you can if I follow that path that you lay out for me. And he reveals himself to his brothers. Joseph takes that moment and reveals himself to his brothers. Now his brother's collective reaction is fear. It's the first time, keeping in mind, he's been dwelling on this now for a period of time, he's known. They had no idea he was even still alive, so they they can't even speak. Again, this guy is second only to Pharaoh. He is a brother they sold into slavery as an act of jealousy, and he stands before them. (coughs) Their lives are literally in his hands. If he says it, it's done. It's over. 
And how does Joseph respond? As he pulls him in close. <laughs> Again, I know I'm telling on myself here, but put yourself in these shoes. How would you respond? You're face to face with the people that have hurt you the most. They started a trajectory for your life, they did, which led to pain and hurt. Would you have that humility and grace to do what Joseph does? I pray to God that I would. Brings to mind for me this beautiful passage from Romans as a bit of an intersect into the next section of this story, which is what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Because this, this simple passage highlights humility mostly, submission, I'll admit that. But as we've covered before, that humility resiliency loop is really the backbone of all of this. Each serves the other in equal measures. You need both. So follow with me from that into this next passage. As Joseph says to his brothers, come close to me. I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now, do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves. In this moment, he's consoling them. He's making them feel better. Do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. Yes. <coughs> Even in that moment, He's able to look back on all this past, all this hurt, all this trauma, which was very, very real, by the way, and says, don't stress. God sent me here before you. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father of Pharaoh, lord of the entire household, and ruler of all of Egypt. Again, God took something evil, and he made it good. Do not fear, my brothers, he says paraphrasing now. We didn't see it in that moment. You couldn't have known in that moment, but God did. That was the trajectory that had to happen to get us here today. That trajectory, that path, literally saved the people of Egypt. And he sends his brothers home to his father, gather his father and their families and their flocks and their wives and everything. And why? Because he can't be to bear away from them any longer. You will be close to me, he says. And then he kisses all of his brothers and he weeps over them. We did some work with numbers before and I'll do another one. 22 years. 22 long years from being sold into slavery to seeing his brothers again. Yeah. <laughs> what must the human spirit do to sustain that time period and that journey and get to that as your end result in that part of this story. Yeah. To reach a level of faith and understanding that allows you to, to withstand that trial and have that be your outlook at the end of all of this still. Now, resilience can be defined in heaps of different ways, but that story, that story of Joseph, just, just provides such a great testimony to all of it. It's the living example of the idea that the past prepares us but it does not define us. Okay, Joseph's life, much like our own, it's not up and to the right, it's a series of peaks and troughs. Our resilience is where we show our ability to respond to the troughs. There's no straight line for any of us, despite our desires, despite our expectations, despite our own decisions. Sometimes life simply happens to us. 
Our resilience, again, is formed in how we respond to those moments. Okay, so what are some takeaways we can take from here? We're going to slide one. I'm going to have another little sip of water. Okay, resilience is faithful perseverance. We need to recognize that resilience is not a passive characteristic. It is an active choice. Okay? We can never, ever choose the actions and deeds that happen to us and they're perpetrated against us, but we can always choose our response. Always. How big is the setback that meant you didn't go to work today? How hard did the comment hit that you decided that relationship was completely unable to be recovered? Did you have a bad day? Or did you have a terrible 30 seconds that you let ruin your day? Disappointment and hurt are natural responses. But are we resting in them or are we choosing to move past them? Are our worst moments and our hardest trials, our biggest heartaches, a part of our story or are we letting them become our personality type? Are we letting them become the whole story rather than a part of the story? We've got a slide two on this one. This one requires, I reworded it so it doesn't require as much explanation, but being a resilient disciple is likely the only way to do both parts of that sentence well. Resiliency and discipleship go hand in hand, and again, one feeds the other, like resilience and humility. And I'll explain. Resilience is actually vitally important to our quality of life, to how we respond to life. And our discipleship under Jesus requires a desire to actually continue to push deeper. Okay, to continue taking on challenges and to push through to the other side. Because the Bible, let's take it on a real basic level, the Bible isn't something you read once from cover to cover, discover the butler did it at the end, and then you just roll over and go to sleep. <laughs> right? It is a book that is the Word of God. And it wants to speak to you over and over and over again. The passage you read today should not necessarily read and feel the same when you read it in 20 years' time. Right? You are going to read it 20 times over 20 years and it's going to do different things and it's going to challenge you. Okay? I won't go into it. That's not this sermon, but I can tell you and I'd love to talk to you about it. There have been areas of my own life that I was completely unwilling to let go or look past the first time I read those passages, the first time I read some of these certain parts, and there were bits that I actively rebelled against and said, yeah, I love all the love stuff, I love all the Jesus stuff, the empowerment stuff, but the bits where you want me to change who I am, I, I say no. <laughs> Again, there's, there's hundreds of those stories in this room, I promise you. And they all came out of that willingness to read it the first time and feel that shock or that hurt or that lack of understanding and say, but I will continue. I will keep on pushing into God and hope that he reveals it to me. Now, Jenny mentioned it before. This point, I promise, is not here as an ad for resilient disciples every other Wednesday. (laughs) 
but it's also not not an ad for it either, if I'm being honest. That passage I read earlier about a path to resilience being brought out of an individual and then community, that's why we run these courses. That's why it exists. This is iron sharpening iron in its purest form, right? It's for those moments where you just kind of don't trust that you can get there on your own. And you can do that at home with a Bible, I promise. Between a Bible and God, you'll be fine. Man, you'll get there a lot better and a lot quicker if you just have other people involved in that process. Sometimes we need the example that we're doing pretty well. Some people may even say we're doing better than we think. But again, that reminder of where does that come from? And this leads me to point three, which is another one that's going to need a little bit of unpacking. Because that point is a lack of resilience is an identity issue. That one hits hard. I'll be honest, it's because it's meant to. I want to clarify again, and I hope that you'll offer me a little bit of grace with this, is that moments of weakness and feelings of pain, they are natural and unavoidable. But you need to hear me, church. The moment you called yourself a follower of Jesus, you chose a path that actually insists on resilience. It's not a serving suggestion. It's right there. In this life, you will have troubles. Pick up your cross and follow me. Now, for us in 2024, that's a metaphor. At the time it was written, it wasn't. Joseph never allowed his identity to be slave, prisoner, forgotten brother, forgotten son. The only identity through all of that that he came back to time and time and time again was that he was one who submitted to God. That was his consistent. Now that truth, that knowledge, that first priority to love the Lord our God with our mind, our body and our soul, I think, I think that's important to not forget because I think what we tend to, th- to believe is that resilience is, is born out of trying harder. And if I've given that impression, I apologize. Because I think where resilience is actually born out of is holding on tighter yeah. to God, to his promises. Because when we're at the end of our rope, when you're at your absolute worst, when we're at our most hurt, and when the top of the pit that we're sitting in looks absolutely, impossibly high, when you're in the positions where resilience is needed most, (coughs) truly, what other option do we have? In this room, insert joke about how text can't see very well, right? But in this room, as I look around it from this position, I, I can see people, and we have journeyed through what looks like absolutely the darkest of days. Some of those days have brought with them a cloud that is still casting a shadow today. And it will evermore. Now, if you're still here, that means I've also seen you hold that rope so tightly. I've seen your fingers turn white and your hands start to shake. Thank you for showing us all what that looks like. 
what trusting Jesus looks like, especially when you weren't sure that you still trusted him yourself. The fact that you're still here is a testament to that. Plays into this, this quote, which I really quite like. Viktor Frankl was a Holocaust survivor and became a psychiatrist. And this comment, this, this quote of life is never made unbearable by circumstances, only by lack of meaning and purpose. What a pro. Now, as we come to a close-ish, sorry, Jess, I want to present to you what I believe is the single greatest act of resiliency that's ever been documented. Pastor Tim touched last week on Jesus' final act before his arrest and crucifixion. He'd gone out to seek time of rest, time of prayer, drawing away from his faithful disciples. He knew what awaited with the rising of the sun the next day, and he prayed, and he spoke these words. He says, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. And the only, per- the only person ever to be fully man and fully God in that moment must have felt about as desperate and heartbroken as any man ever has or ever will. And in that moment, an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And then being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Jesus didn't decide on his own that he was just going to tighten his sandals and get on with it. (laughs) He was at his weakest moment. He knew what was going to happen, what needed to happen, and the Lord strengthened him. His role in that moment was to pray and trust God would hear him. The humility to throw himself before God and the resilience to still respond with action once he had And then he arose from prayer and he rejoined his disciples and is promptly arrested. And in that moment, he implores his followers not to fight back with violence and goes with his captives towards his sham trial and wrongful execution. He knew this was the path. He knew it was his end. But in this moment of desperation, he did two things. The first was, he still took it to God. With those words, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. And I just think, imagine the desperation and that fear he must have felt to then reach that next line of prayer. Now, we don't know the gap in between. I don't know if it rolled off the tongue, but I I can imagine this slight hesitation. We'll never know. Yet not my will, but yours be done begging God for it to not be so. And then acceptance. A willingness to succumb to that will of God. And then he goes. Not because it was easy, but it's because what had to be done. The greatest act of resiliency, humility, obedience, and obedience 
of love of all time. It was his final gift. And as much as God is a God of love and grace and faith, he's also a God that uses those things to sustain us, to provide us with a resilience and a backbone when we're not sure we can find one for ourselves, to give us this desire to go on when we don't trust ourselves enough to do so. But if you've ever worried about your response to adversity or to challenge or like you've missed the mark too many times, church, I'm here to say, don't worry. You're in very good company. We all fall short of the glory of God. I'm going to finish today with a prayer of hope that's born out of these times. <coughs> and I'd like to invite the rest of the band to come up. Now, this prayer was written by Douglas McKelvey. I can't take responsibility for it. More credit. And it was written out of a time where it feels like the only thing we have left is that identity I was talking about earlier, that identity as a child of God. And thank God we have that. So as you close your eyes to, to, to hear this prayer and to pray it yourself, I'd love it if you'd take this moment to reflect on those moments where it all maybe seemed a little too much, where you had no idea how you'd take the next step, how you'd move forward the next day, and then reflect on the times when you did, where God strengthened you and he emboldened you, on those days when you couldn't imagine making it through, but through the grace of God you did, and as a result, we share this time together today. When this prayer is finished and the band begin to play, we're going to offer a time of ministry and prayer. Some of our pastors and our team will be up on the sides here. And as always, it's about that first step. It's never about the last step. It's about the first step. So if you have a willingness and a desire for prayer, about your path, your battles, your journeys. I invite you to come up. O Christ, in whom the final fulfillment of all hope is held and secure, I bring to you now the weathered fragments of my former dreams, the rent patches of hopes worn thin, the shards of some shattered image of life as I once thought it would be. What I so wanted has not come to pass. I invested my hopes and desires that returned only sorrow and frustration. Those dreams like glimmering fairy feasts could not sustain me. And in my head, I know that you are sovereign even over this, over my tears, my confusion and my disappointment, but I still feel in this moment as if I have been abandoned, as if you do not care that these hopes have collapsed to rubble. And yet I know that this is not so. You are the sovereign of my sorrow. You apprehended a wider sweep with wiser eyes than mine. My history hears the fingerprints of grace. You were always faithful though. I could not always trace quick evidence of your presence in my pain, yet you did remain at work. Lurking in the wings, sifting all my splinterings for bright embers that might be breathed into more eternal dreams. I have seen so often retrospect how you had not neglected me, but had with a master's care flared my desire like silver in a crucible to burn away some lesser longing and bringing about your better vision. So let me remain tender now to how you would teach me. 
my disappointments reveal so much about my own agenda for my life and the ways I quietly demand that it should play out free of conflict, free of pain, free of want. My dreams are all so small. Your biggest purpose has always been for my greater good. That I, would, that I would day-to-day be fashioned into a more fit vessel for the indwelling of your spirit and molded into a more compassionate emissary of your coming kingdom. And you, in love, will use all means to shape my heart into those perfect forms. So let this disappointment do its work. My truest hopes have never failed. They have merely been buried beneath the shoveled muck of disillusion or encased in a carapace of self-serving desire. It is only false hopes that are brittle, shattering like shells of thin glass to reveal the diamond hardness of the unshakable, eternal hopes within. So shake and shatter all that hinders my growth, O God. Unmask all false hopes that my one true hope might shine out unclouded and undimmed. So let me be tutored by this new disappointment. Let me listen to its holy whisper that I may release at least these lesser dreams. That I might embrace the better dreams that you dream for me and for your people and for your kingdom and for your creation. Let me join myself to these, investing all hope in the one hope that will never come undone or betray those who place their trust in it. Teach me to hope, O Lord always and only in you. You are the king of my collapse. You answer not what I demand, but what I do not even know to ask. So take this dream, this husk, this chaff of my desire, and give it back, reformed and remade according to your better vision, or do not give it back at all. Here in the ruins of my wrecked expectation, let me make this confession. Not my dreams, O Lord. Not my dreams, but yours be done. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. I pray that you were able to hear from God in a fresh way today. We would love to hear from our listeners. To connect with us or to financially support the work of Encounter, please jump on our website, encounteradelaide.com.au. And if you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to jump onto iTunes, Spotify, or your podcast provider and give us a rating and review. Or share this message on your social media accounts and tag us at Encounter Adelaide. God bless. Have an amazing week.